Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, I've got a health expert on concerning women's health. She's Dr. Christy Cobb of Little Rock, Arkansas. You'll get to meet her right after this. During this very divided time politically, there's one thing we can all agree on. And that's the fact that the hardest part of adulting is figuring out what to prepare every night. I know, I've been doing it a long time. Well, thanks to Ralston Family Farms, ralstonfamilyfarms.com. You can go to the link, it's in our show notes. You can get those recipes that will help you with the conundrum of what am I going to feed these people? The Ralston family has been farming for over 10 generations. I've been talking about them. Once I got introduced to this outstanding Arkansas product, yo, I have been Team Ralston the whole way. You can do the same thing and you'll feel the same way once you start seeing what they do, their regenerative farming, how they are a family in, that's kind of North Central Arkansas. Oh, they are fine people and they have a fine product on the table. The Nature's Blend is my favorite. I say that, but I love me some Basmati too. You can find out more by going to their website, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. Available at select Costco stores. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, we're talking women's health with Dr. Christy Cobb, and I think we all are hearing about gut health, how it's our second brain, how the serotonin, so much of it's made in the gut. So where do we start for everybody just to start off the month of August 2021 with good gut health? Oh, well, I've been threatening for a while now to change my middle name to Fiber. That's cute. that's exactly where you begin. (laughs) Um, Fiber, it'll fix all your problems. And... It's, it's so simple, and yet for some reason, it's so hard to incorporate fiber into our lifestyles. Is it because we think Metamucil, or is oh, it because it, oh, we that's can't- that's a great place to start, right. Is it because so, we can't fit in some apples during the day? Yes, I think that the idea of fiber for so many women was something that came in a jar that their grandma took when they were locked up. Right. And so, yeah, I think it's first of all the definition of where do you get your fiber? Um, And then as we've so many of us have moved to just a convenience lifestyle, we're always running and we're doing things that are fast and easy and fun. And sometimes that is not necessarily food that hasn't been stripped of its natural fiber. So I think it's a combination. Well, I'm a health coaching student at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, New York. And so just this week we were learning in order for a food, and I'm pointing to my pantry, to remain shelf stable, they have to rip the fiber from it. So what we're eating, if it's in a package, unless it's a, I don't even know if the fiber one bars, cause that's probably crap too. Right, you're making the face. Like, yeah, it's well, not, those right. come with a lot of hitchhikers of, of things you may not want along with your fiber. Right. So, so yeah, really, that's not one of my favorite hacks. So the foods that we need to eat with fiber will rot in on your countertop or in your refrigerator. If we're talking about real foods, And then if we are talking supplements, which route do you take? 
Yeah, well, I think any time you make a change in your life, you've got to figure out what is actually sustainable for my lifestyle. And so I think fiber exists on a continuum. And I know that my health journey is, I didn't just drop in to where I'm at now 13 years ago. You know, it's been a continuum. And so when I'm talking to patients specifically about how to make lifestyle changes, it's like, okay, how much time do you have to devote to this? How many resources do you have? What's your barrier to just doing it anyway? Was there ever a time in your life before when you were able to have better lifestyle choices and what happened, you know, your job, seven kids, you commute to work. I mean, you know, like a million things have happened and then not even going there, but quarantine, working from home, getting groceries delivered, trying to find things that would stay on the shelf because you don't want to go to the grocery store once a week. I mean, that was my personal experience. And I'll tell you, constipation has been through the roof in the last year. Is that because right? Because we're more sedentary and yeah. we're eating more convenience processed shelf ready foods. So I, I don't think there's a wrong place to start. It's like when you're hiking, if you change your direction one degree, you're gonna end up somewhere else. And so with fiber, even if you just change it a gram a day and you did that once a week, in 40 weeks, you'd be eating 40 grams of fiber every day, which is what I recommend people do. 40 grams? Well, you're gonna poop 10 times a day. Well, if you do it right, you only do it once, but oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it would be, well, it's probably 40 more times than most of us have. What is, isn't the, like the American, not the standard American diet, but just consumers and how much we consume, isn't it? like fewer than five grams a day or 10? It's well, like a really I, low. 15 is okay. what I, the number I usually quote. And that's probably a bit optimistic, especially in the last year, because I do think people's nutrition patterns have changed when it became more difficult to keep fresh produce and vegetables around. Um, but yeah, I mean, five is bad and 15 is not much better when you think about what our goals should be. Um, so there's a lot of room for improvement. That also means a small change is gonna lead to a big result. So let's talk about the first small change. Would it be just incorporating fresh fruits every day? Well, I think you look at the foods you're already eating and is there a easy swap for what, you're, what you already like? Like for example, let's say, what do you have for breakfast? Well, if you're like, well, I have cereal for breakfast. Well, how would you feel about a high fiber cereal? Or if I have a sandwich for lunch, well, let's talk about high fiber bread or high fiber tortillas, or I'm a pastaholic. Well, let's look at a high fiber alternative. And so I think starting where you're at is a really powerful place because you don't feel like you're making any sacrifices. You're just making a different choice when you shop. So you're telling people then to make the swap rather than, I really don't think you should be eating cereal for breakfast. You don't even go down that path yet, right? No, it actually, I mean, there's, I mean, we can get there eventually, but there's actually been some great studies done with simply changing breakfast cereal and decreasing the risk of precancerous polyps. So, I mean, I am a, a, a big breakfast fan myself, but if you're not a breakfast fan, there's always a way to add it to another meal of the day. Because I know you're a faster. So yes, I can, <laughs> we can get there I, eventually if you want to. Right, right, right. Well, that is kind of the conundrum fasters go through is that mm -hmm. I eat so little. You would think I would be the size of this pen, but I'm postmenopausal with a thyroid that is so unimpressive. But I mean, it doesn't matter to me what I weigh. But my point is, um, I do have some prebiotic fiber I got from uh, a functional medicine doc, but just remembering then to put that in the water. I haven't eaten yet today. It's been almost 24 hours since I've eaten. Just one of those longer fasts. Um, and I know for me, that's just challenging just to fit it in. I do keep fresh fruits here and vegetables. So I, I hope I'm getting some in, but I don't know the math. What What's the math then of 
the broccoli I might have in the refrigerator and the red leaf, uh, the leafy greens and the fruit I have on the counter. What does that add up to? Yeah. So that's a good second step. You're, oh God, you're just feeding this to me. So <laughs> I actually have a handout that I, yeah, yeah. we didn't plan this. Um, I have a handout that I'll send with patients oh. that is a thick, a quick fiber check. And so most people have no idea how much fiber they're eating. I mean, they may have a rough idea of how many calories no they're eating, maybe no, even no fat or protein, but like no one ever counts their fiber ever except me uh, and you hopefully after this video is over. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I have them just check in. And so there, you can keep up with it by reading labels. There's plenty of apps you can use to keep up with macronutrients. And so to see where you're starting from, and that's usually really, really motivational. I taught a class, I was doing employee wellness a few years ago, and it was like the Monday or Tuesday after Easter, which everyone thinks, oh, like that's a feast. Like I'm eating really good this weekend. So it was a great time. I said, okay, retrospectively, write down everything you ate and let's estimate how much fiber you had. And even on a day where most people felt like they were eating better than they usually do and more real food, most people had less than 20 grams. And so I think it's a good wake up call for people to realize that not that they're doing bad, but that they have so much room for improvement. Because what I hear over and over again is, I've tried everything. And it's like, well, have you tried counting your fiber yet? And so a, a fun like, motivational no. <laughs> thing to throw in there is that for every gram of fiber you add to your diet, you usually eat about 10 calories less because it makes you more satisfied. So let's say if you only ate 10 grams of fiber every day, you bump it up to 30. That means if the math works, you should be eating about 300 calories less every day. Well, that plus 200 calories of exercise will set you up to lose a pound a week by not depriving yourself of anything by actually adding in more good stuff. And I find for me anyway, it's easier to add in the good stuff than it is to say you can't have the bad stuff. Does that make sense? Yes, because a lot of people wanna know, tell me what I can eat and what I can't eat. Yes. And you're saying you can eat whatever you want, just add fiber. For right. now, for now. And at the end of the day, if you've had your 40 grams of fiber and you're still craving something, go for it. And in my experience, it's you're pretty hard pressed to want a Snickers bar after you've had 40 grams of fiber right. because you're so totally stuffed and you're satisfied. Do you like fiber then because of the reduction of polyps, uh, precancerous polyps? Or do you like it more for just overall? Because that's part of your gut, if you think, you know. Right. I mean, given I'm a gynecologist by trade. And so I always say I, I don't do that whole <laughs> as far as you know, the GI <laughs> yes, health. Yes. <laughs> totally right. beyond the scope of my practice. And so as a caveat, anything we discussed today about GI health is really just my personal experience and Good. my journey, not because I'm an expert whatsoever. I would say always talk to your primary doctor, see a gastroenterologist, like see someone who has letters behind their name about this. Um, yeah, so for me, it's because it makes me feel good and it helps me maintain my body weight. But as a gynecologist, it's because fiber is really one of the best ways to balance your hormones naturally. And that's the other thing people uh, complain about is I want to lose weight, I've tried everything, and my hormones are out of balance. I love that. I never even knew it was a part of the equation. Well, if you ever seen the Cheerios box or the Quaker oatmeal container that says eat oatmeal and lower your cholesterol, yeah, like that's been a thing for a long, long time. And why is that? I mean, everyone knows that's true. Like no one debates me on that. But do right. you know why that is? No. I'm okay, you're sitting down. Okay, I'm, so I'm ready. It's because there's this thing called enterohepatic circulation. And that means that what gets absorbed from our intestines goes to our liver. Our liver is a filter. And so our liver is also trying to like dump the stuff we don't need anymore, specifically into the gut. That's why it's called the elimination system. And when you try to eliminate cholesterol from your body, but there's not fiber waiting in the intestine to like 
hug onto it and send it where it needs to go, it's going to get reabsorbed. And so that's why eating a high fiber diet will lower your cholesterol. Well, if you look at the pathway Mm -hmm. of how cholesterol is made and how hormones are made, it's all kind of from the same pathway. And I won't get nerdy on that. But if you if your body's trying to lower your estrogen levels or lower your progesterone levels or get your body in balance, and yet there's no fiber waiting there to be the Uber driver of the hormones to poop them out of the body, it's gonna get reabsorbed. And so adding fiber to your diet can actually help to balance your hormones because it gives your body the ability to do what it was built to do in the first place, which is eliminate things through the gut. And for most people, this is just like, that makes so much sense because I know that's true about cholesterol. And yet, wow, I didn't know that that would work for my hormones. Last step of this is back to the idea of when you eat more fiber, you eat less calories, therefore you maintain your ideal body weight or you are able to get down to it with weight loss. Well, the other places where we make a lot of estrogen in our system, especially after menopause, when your ovaries are no longer the, you know, the primary source, is our fat tissue, our adipose cells. And so by having less fat on your body, less excess fat, that also is going to lower these estrogen-producing factories. And so it's kind of a two-step effect. It's going to work to get rid of the extra, and it's also going to decrease that extra body fat. And what does that eventually mean? Not just that you're at less risk of heart disease, and that's what kills 50% of women, but decreased risk of breast cancer, decreased risk of uterine cancer, things that are estrogen-sensitive cancers. And that data's out there. People know that. But it's like step one is add more fiber. It's so, so simple. It does sound so simple. I'm craving an apple. I can't wait. (laughs) Now, tell me your health journey. How did you not just become or decide on gynecology or obstetrics um, may have been what you were doing at first, but just that you wanted to really tackle the nutrition side to women's health that isn't being addressed by doctors who graduate from traditional Western allopathic or and I'm sorry, not allopathic, but yes, allopathic. No, allopathic, that's yes, MD. that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. MD is an allopathic, yeah. which, you know, means the tr- the uh, diagnosis and treatment of symptoms. The day yeah. I figured that out, I realized yeah. I probably went to the wrong med school and I was like super disenchanted <laughs> for a while. Yeah. So if you go to the doctor and all they do is give you a pill to treat your symptoms, they yeah. actually did exactly what they were trained to do. So try not to be okay. too sad about okay. it. Okay. You know, it's just, that's, yeah. That's good. Devil's in the details yeah. when it comes down to the entomology of that. Yeah, so my, um, for full disclosure, I eat a plant-based um, diet. Um, I don't technically call myself vegan because I still have leather in my car and I don't always micromanage every ingredient in my mascara, you know, but I right. try to be more and more plant-based as the journeys um, continued. And for me, it honestly started by accident. I was on a trip in my, gosh, my third year of residency. OBGYN is four years. So I was kind of an upper level resident. Life was crazy. And I decided I really, really, really wanted to have another baby. And I had had two babies in med school. It was like, wow. I was really blessed with fertility and it wasn't immediately <sighs> happening. So I was on this trip to Napa and San Francisco. And I say that I ate every animal on the ark on that trip. I mean, we're talking Alrighty, Michael then. Mina, Bouchon, Silverado Grill, like everywhere okay. you want to eat, every amazing mm, bit of food. Yes. And the interesting part about it is I spent so much of that trip just feeling not great. I'm like, how could I spend so much time and money on all this food? And then I'm like laying on my bed in my hotel with my belly all bloated. And like, I don't even want to go out and do anything. So by accident in the airport on the way home, um, my husband at the time found a book in, in, pardon my French, it was entitled Skinny Bitch Bun in the Oven. And it's kind of a joke. He's like, let's buy it. And I was like, yeah, because I want to be skinny and I want to be pregnant. Like it really was just 
you know, you judging a book by its cover. So I devoured this book in probably about two or three days. And the thing that got my attention is that everything in it was like annotated. It was like reference to a journal article. And it was like crass. It was inappropriate. It was irreverent. It was like your girlfriends were just having a glass of wine and telling you like it is. Except as a scientist and knowing what I learned in biochemistry and med school, I couldn't deny that they were right. Mm. And so I thought, what do I have to lose? You know, it's like I couldn't unknow this after I read it. And so kind of covertly, over the course of the next three months, I stopped eating animal products. It took me a full month to get off dairy. I loved every drop of dairy I ever ate. I can't say it loved me back. And then I was really lucky that at the time, the woman who was the nanny for my boys um, was an excellent vegan cook. Her husband was vegan. And so when she kind of figured out that I was like eating everything except the meat and cheese and stuff, she was like, okay, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm trying to be vegan. And she's like, well, you got to stop eating just broccoli. You know, like we can do better than that. And she taught me recipes. And that is when it just, it made sense to me. I lost 15 pounds in three months without even exercising, my acne got better, my migraines went away. I mean, things that just could not have been explained by anything else. So I I didn't really do all the extra research. Everything that happened after that, learning that there was like a huge body of science to back this up, kind of just happened secondarily. And so in the years since then, I guess that was in, gosh, 2008, it's just been a journey and it's just been very intuitive. You know, an opportunity presents itself or I can go to this meeting or I can study with this person. And it's, it's been a wild ride, but I couldn't be any happier with the, the result and how I was able to have a wonderful vegan pregnancy. My daughter will so quickly you tell you. Pregnant. She, you did yeah, get pregnant. Yeah, I did. Okay. She's 11 now. She'll tell you she's been vegan since <laughs> she was an embryo. Um, and as my own randomized control trial compared to my two previous pregnancies, I was just way healthier and I had way more energy and I delivered when I was in my 30s. So for me as an obstetrician, I was like, okay, I've got to be able to have this tool in my tool belt where if people come to me and they're already vegetarian or vegan, or they're like, I have legit risk factors. Like I have hypertension, I have diabetes. What can I do to have a lower risk pregnancy? I want to be able to give them the data they need to support that this is a safe thing for them to do, not just that like I read a book in an airport and I got lucky. <laughs> right. Uh, you don't worry about the B vitamin imbalance or... Oh, anything? no. I mean, I recommend you take a, a B12 supplement. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a, a, when I say a plant-based diet and versus just saying vegan diet, I think it has to be well-planned. And I really like the term nutritarian. Um, I'm not really into labels, but if we have to put a label on something, I like the idea of focusing on where your nutrients come from and eating a nutrient-dense diet. For me, a plant-based way is the easiest way for me to be nutrient-dense. But eating like iceberg lettuce and french fries is not a healthy vegan diet. And so I think that goes without saying as plant-based has become more popular. Um, But yeah, it's got to be well-planned. It's got to be well-rounded. You've got to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need. It also depends on what your goals are. Well, doesn't Dr. Hyman call it the pagan? Wait, it's paleo vegan, which to me, it sounds like it should be pagan if you combine those words. But <laughs> because of marketing, I guess he didn't think that was a great idea. Yeah, so that he, probably wouldn't do he so He calls well. it vegan and it's part paleo, part vegan. And so his, I've heard him say, when he says about himself, when I say plant-based, I'm saying it, it's the base of my plate but I, he still, you know, a lot of people do, and I have them here because I don't like organ meats, but I do organ meat capsules because of the longevity factors and some mm-hmm. other things that are involved in it. Would you do that be, 
since it's not a moral issue for you, it's more of a health issue. Do you even think to supplement with stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question because gelatin can be a thing or like, where do you get your omega-3s, you know? So I will say it's become more of a moral thing for me now. I am much more mindful about um, where things come from. And so I have had, you know, it's, it's always Christmas and weddings. You know, I've had traces of egg and dairy and things like that. And that doesn't seem to give me any trouble. Um, and when I've traveled, I've had a little bit of fish, you know, if that's like what's available there. That doesn't agree with me so much anymore. Really? Um, yeah, but I wouldn't now because I haven't found anything yet that I felt was essential for me on my path that I couldn't get from a non-animal source. And so, um, again, I don't know a lot about longevity. I'm still premenopausal. And so I'll, I would be interested to hear what you've learned about that. Um, but well, I haven't. Yeah. And I do even for vitamins, things like that. I try to avoid things that have like, you know, fish and shark and things like that in them. Because I think it's not even so much the ethical side of it. It's the environmental impact. And that's, you know, probably what appeals to me more is just the sustainability. So you're really reading labels, really reading labels. Oh my gosh, my kids hate going to the grocery store with me because it takes so long. Like, if we're gonna TikTok. Yeah. And now that my daughter's older, like she'll read through it and she's a lot more hardcore than I am. And she'll be like, um, we can't get that. Like that has gelatin in it. And I'm oh, like- Oh wow, that really is hard. Yeah, so she's much more ethical. And I think there's not a wrong way to do it, whether it's for your cholesterol to make your insurance premiums lower, or it's for the environment, or it's ethical, or it's religious even. Um, I don't think there's a wrong way to get healthier. Whatever motivates you is the right way. That's right. And also what I'm feeling, um, you know, I have many years ahead of you on just learning about people. And I know you've ascertained this yourself, but we learn in the Institute, IIN, Institute for Integrative Nutrition, it's all about bioindividuality. And what Amen. works for me may not work for the, the humans I birthed. And I know this because my daughter's also a student at IIN. She's a professional model, um, but super fit, super healthy and all that. So she's had to eliminate dairy. Um, she said she's mainly plant-based, but she still will eat meats. And so it's on a moral issue. It's really about the way she feels. She'll get acne, she says, if she has any dairy. And she oh, has, yes. she oh, has it'll so tell many on you photo shoots. Way. Yeah. So that's why, and so when she's here, I'm pretty much dairy-free. I mean, but there may be something that comes in, you know, here or there. So I don't think about it as much, but when I know when my daughter's here, I'm like, oh, chop, chop, animals are coming. We gotta go back to Whole Foods and see what they have. Yeah, and well, and another term I like to use, and I don't know if I made this up or not, but I like to call it unchanged foods. And so whether uh, you're yeah. eating plant-based or for people yeah. that have the resources or the ability to source really, really good quality, like if you milk your own goat, I don't really have much to say about right. that. You know what right. I mean? And I right. think that's part of the challenge is that, you know, you can eat a vegan chicken nugget and be super unhealthy, or you can like grow your own eggs and maybe that works for you because you don't have hereditary high cholesterol. And so I think, you know, eating locally, eating seasonally and eating for your Absolutely. phase of life is really important. But knowing that if what you're doing isn't working, this is something new that you may try. One thing, another uh, blinder that's been lifted to me and I'm not eating it again is wheat. Uh, once I read Dr. Bill Davis's book, Wheat Belly, you know, and he, so I, I'm thinking at my season of life, um, because I do love intermittent fasting, it works for me. Again, it's not mm -hmm. for everybody. And I like longer fasts, things like that, just for, to flex my flex, my fasting muscle. But when he, in the book, he talks so much about schizophrenia 
that they remove wheat from the diet of these schizophrenic patients, their symptoms go away. Uh, people with dementia, they remove wheat from their diet, symptoms go away. And so I, you know, I look at this epidemic of, you know, Dr. Hyman calls it United States of diabetes that they're calling diabetes type, well, they're calling dementia type three diabetes. So we're doing something, we're consuming something. I also think, you know, I hate packaged foods. I think they're the devil. And I, I think our government's in bed with pharma and food companies that, that they're the ones who preach to us on TV all the time. So what is your opinion then on wheat or gluten in the diet? Sure, yeah. Um, so I've experimented. I actually gave up gluten for Lent one year. I gave up wheat for 40 days um, for a spiritual practice. And I am one of the 90% of people where it didn't cause me a lick of difference. And so oh. the number I was taught is that about 10% of people, or sorry, about 1% of the population has like it's legit celiac. celiac right? Like it's not an option for you. About 10% is gluten intolerant and about 90% of people will only see a benefit because they have to stoop lower to reach the gluten-free stuff on the low shelf. <laughs> yeah, right. so they'll get a few extra calories burned. And right, so I'm very go. lucky because being gluten-free and vegan would be very limiting, at least it was in well, the past. So it doesn't- It would be water. You would have yeah, water it would be every hard day, for me, but it. when I've done raw fast or when I've done intermittent fasting and I'm transitioning back to normal, I find that anything processed doesn't agree with me. Also, we can go back to ancient grains versus highly processed wheat. Like right. I don't think highly processed applesauce is the same thing as an apple. And I don't think white bread is the same thing as, you know, hard wheat berries, you know, red hard winter wheat berries. So I think you've got to look at how you're eating it. But I think it's a, an easy thing to experiment with. The caveat there is that now that gluten-free kind of became like a fad diet for a while, there's so much like garbage, gluten-free, like crap. Cheetos puffs or something. You know what right. I'm saying? It and is. So no, there is. I think you've got to make sure that you're not like following a gimmick, but yet now you're actually eating more calories and more processed food because it's oat flour, you know? And right. I actually don't do so great with oats. I say I'm oat intolerant. I don't even know if that's a thing. No, but, you my know, daughter who I'm talking about, it says the same thing. There's some desserts at Whole Foods that are vegan, but they have oats in them and they make her sick. Yeah. But they're, they were, yeah, they were vegan but had oats, so. Yeah, so I think you've gotta, it's, I think an elimination diet's a great way to start, you know, and scientifically, if you change more than vari one variable at a time, you won't really know what's working for you. So when people say, oh, I'm gonna go gluten-free and lose all this weight, I'm like, let me know how that goes for you. You know, yeah. again, a well-planned gluten-free diet may be your jam, but for a lot of people it isn't. And so I wanna set the expectations that let's focus on processed food. Let's talk about, you know, total consumption, excess calories. Um, not necessarily there's one nutrient or one thing, you know, whether it's dairy or actually, I still think dairy's not really good for anybody who's not breastfeeding. But um, right. I think gluten's a plus minus thing. And I do identify as a carbivore. Um, I like a high carb diet. That's what works for me. So that's um, beans and rice for you to get complex. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a great cardiologist named Daniel Villardo who posted this uh, pizza cutter on Instagram recently. And she was like, this is how I cut my carbs. And I wish I could have made that into a t-shirt because I love that. But that's what works for me at this point in my life. Right. And I think that's really understandable that it doesn't work for a lot of people because sometimes it's hard to control volume and consumption, you know, eating in moderation. Well, and blood sugar come, gets involved. I'm doing this continuous glucose monitor right now because of my genetic predisposition for type two diabetes with a father, grandfather and great grandfather, all type two diabetics. They were skinny, but they were alcoholics and they pickled mm -hmm. their little pancreas. But because of that, you know, you. 
you really can't outrun your genetics, but you can do something about the way you express them, you know, with epigenetics and stuff. So, oh, absolutely. So I've been, um, that's why I've done a 24 hour fast now. And I think the last time I checked my glucose, it was still 90, it was 91. I mean, it's not low, it's not high, it's just right. But I'm doing that to see what works for me mm-hmm. because it has changed that I have really noticed that as we age, it does, does change. And what used to maybe make me feel good doesn't make me feel so great now. Right. And it's just, and I think as people experiment, it's, it's one of the challenges is finding a physician who is comfortable with like monitoring you and making those adjustments as you experiment. You know, most doctors that trained in my era only got about four hours of nutrition training. Okay. I need you to, no, no, no. I need you to repeat that. Yeah. People do not understand. They think they go to their doctor and why hasn't the doctor told them not to eat whatever I'm Because your doctor doesn't know. Because your doctor doesn't remember know. allopathic, I diagnose and treat symptoms. Yeah, and so the best part of right. my four hours, um, it was actually a take-home DVD that was sponsored <laughs> by the beef industry. Stop I can't make it. this up. I literally can't make this up. Oh my god! And given I'm the granddaughter of a cattle mm. farmer, you know, and I'm right. that's fine. But for full disclosure <laughs> oh and for gosh. transparency, like if my pharmacology book was sponsored by Bayer or Pfizer, it would not be okay. And so I think that's that's why I love the movie What the Health because it really exposes how we learned what we learned. Most people can't tell you how they learned to eat other than probably Saturday morning cartoon commercials and their mom and what was served at school. And so when you look at how the USDA guidelines, you know, get decided. Oh. I was actually invited to go speak at one of the hearings last time they made the- Go, I'll drive I know, you. I want to next time. So people get their like three minutes or whatever of fame. Right. So you have someone from the chewing gum industry and you have someone from the beat, I'm not even joking. Why? There's like the, the sucralose people will be there about three minutes about why sucralose needs to be included in the whatever. And so we need more doctors there. Well, guess what the doctors are doing? They're working the booties off in clinic. They don't have time to fly to DC right. and talk right. in meetings. So I think, it's, that's one of the, I don't know how we're going to do better at that. I will tout UAMS for adding a culinary class to part of medical school. Right. They're actually teaching students how to cook and how to treat food as a medicine. It's a medicine that everyone doses two to three times a day, and we do it irresponsibly. We would never let someone go home with insulin or blood pressure medicine and say, eh, you know, like watch, watch some TV and figure it out, you know, <laughs> but that's right. what we do with food. And that explains a lot of what's going on in our country. But too, then that discussion turns political because who subsidizes the wheat, corn, wheat and corn farmers and dairy farmers? The things that probably- The commodities, yeah. Right, the, the commodities. No one's getting rich off that, broccoli right now. That, that's right. And I hate that, that that happens, that the organic foods that I wish you would get, no, M- Michelle Obama did a great thing by trying to encourage people to do that. But a lot of people said, well, I can't afford it. And then you want to back up and say, no, you could don't get the Cheerios and don't get the granola bar. Right. What you can't afford is the amount you're going to spend on dealing with all the problems that are going to happen by not taking care of yourself. It's like saying, I'm going to give you a Ferrari and you're like, I can't really afford premium gas. A little segue here to talk more about the health coaching that I mentioned. I am a student at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and if anything about investing both financially in your future and in your health sounds appealing to you, I want you to go to the show notes and click on the link to get more information about IIN. Health coaching, it is the future, friends. Major news organizations are focusing on this fact as the amount of people with health issues, I'm talking really serious health issues, continues to grow. So we need more health coaches 
to help steer them to good health. You can be the conduit to get them there. I chose the six-month program. My daughter chose the year-long program. Either way, we'll have our health certifications in no time. I love my classes at IIN, and it has helped me get healthier. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, yeah, and I, I use that example all the sure, time that example. if someone gave you a Ferrari, let's say you're you're born and you have like your parents control your nutrition for the first year or two of life and then you're a toddler and you're making a lot more of your own choices. Well, if I gave you a, a premium car and only put gas in it for two years, do you expect it to run for 85 years? Right. No. Right. That's you where know? we are. No, it's, it's really bad. Okay, let's talk now about um, just women's health overall my um so i'm a thyroid advocate because of my own journey it took me four years to get diagnosed and as you see i have vitiligo i mean i have all the things that go along with it but i i have really the best and everyone they're like oh, you've got now this is kind of taken off in the last two years i really don't care i mean it's just cosmetic but the other things you know i had to be my own student because nobody had time 15 minutes with me you know, they did palpate my thyroid, one guy did, and he said, well, I was a little swollen. You know, well, my antibodies were crazy, crazy, crazy. So when you have to take the bull by the horns like that, and you, then you, if you can find someone you can communicate with, and my original uh, endocrinologist, I remember he, he would sit down and say, well, the most important thing I need to know is what's your period like? And I went, like, what do you mean? He goes, no, I need to know how long is it? How much yeah. do you bleed? And I said, why? And he goes, he said this, he's 80 years old in Northwest Arkansas. He said, cause it's the biggest barometer. Amen, you took the words out of my mouth. I is say that, right? that like 10 times a day that your period is like mm -hmm. a vital sign. It's a mm -hmm. huge barometer for your overall health. And so um, that's where I think a lot of gynecologists get it wrong is that again, back to what am I doing? I'm diagnosing your symptom and I'm treating it. So we like, mask it and we don't actually Ugh. figure out like why is your period why, why is it screaming at us like either mm -hmm. it's gone or it's too heavy or it's really painful yeah so i, I really applaud that endocrinologist yeah, for did. asking and, this question and i've never forgotten it because i remember having to take a friend's daughter to him because she couldn't go and um uh, the girl ended she was 16 ended up having thyroid cancer yeah which he said he was seeing a lot of people under 20 uh younger than 20 and over 65 women with thyroid cancer. And I remember he asked her, what's your period like? And she said, oh, it's not good. He goes, well, that's a problem. I go, yeah. we're here for thyroid. He said, no, ma'am. He said, we're here. He says, your period tells so much. So I've never forgotten that. Well, now, Dr. Cobb, we have a, a generation of people who don't have periods because they're all artificially stopping them because yeah. of hormones and stuff. So what's your opinion then on stopping something that's so vital for our existence? You know, again, you got to pick your poison, literally, you know, and you yeah. have to look at risk and benefits. Um, I want to throw something out there real quick before we dive into that, because I think it's important. Um, you know, a thyroid check is a workup for heavier absent periods. I mean, that should be in your gynecologist routine. Like when they're checking your blood count, they should check your thyroid. I joke it's because if it's your thyroid, it's not my problem anymore because I don't manage uh, thyroid outside right, of pregnancy. Right. And I would say it's a lot easier to fix than menopause. But... Yeah. In times after major stressors, for example, after World War II, there was a huge spike in thyroid abnormalities. And so I have been kind of sitting on the edge of my seat this year, and I feel like we've been finding stuff even more frequently because we yeah. are all coming through a huge stress. And so I think everyone's index of suspicion needs to go up. I mean, it's not gonna be everyone's thyroid, but if we just catch even one or two that maybe we wouldn't have checked it, but we are now, I think that's just important for people to remember as they're going to their doctors that epidemiology 
epidemiologically, we are leaning in to what could be another round of like major thyroid disease just because of what we've all been through. That's that's a great point because each time I had an autoimmune flare up was after my three pregnancies. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you're in a time of stress, mm-hmm. but um, anyway, so I just want to throw that in there. Yeah, that's great. So I think that you've got to figure out what is your bigger risk if getting pregnant is the worst possible thing that could happen to you and contraception is the number one thing because most people don't have a thyroid problem are most people going to miss the diagnosis or delay it because they're on birth control no probably not okay but if you had irregular periods before you were on birth control it probably needs to be thoroughly evaluated before you just get put on birth control or if you have irregular periods and you've been on birth control for 10 years because you've been on them since age 15 and now you're 25 and you're thinking about starting a family and you didn't have the luxury of having it evaluated then talking with your doctor about okay let's get off pills maybe a little bit sooner let's talk about new non-hormonal methods because there's some great stuff on the market now and let's figure out where i'm at because the thing about thyroid in young women is that if it's too high or too low it can make it harder to get pregnant and it can increase the risk of not only pregnancy loss but lots of obstetrical complications so this isn't just like oh it would be nice to know it's like literally an issue of life or death so I think that's something that people need to be mindful of. And of course, if you already have a known thyroid diagnosis, making sure that it's optimally managed before you get pregnant is really important. And I don't deliver babies or do obstetrics anymore, but I do want to throw that out there. But your because, heart is still there. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. unknow it. Yeah, right. And, and I birth- still counsel women, you know, for yeah. preconception planning, you know, family planning, things like that. Well, the other thing I think I see this epidemic of is infertility. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, because I like the functional medicine approach of not the Band-Aid, but why? Right. So what do you, what do you think that is? Do you think that's um, STDs? Is it birth control? I mean, there's something somewhere that's throwing us off. Sure. Um, yeah, and gosh, I don't know if you've seen The Handmaid's Tale, but I, oh, I, I'm girl. only in the first season, so no spoilers. But uh, it really scares me because I'm like, the I don't spoiler. know. You need a Xanax. Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, it is so difficult. I can't go to season two even because okay, yeah, it's so, it's so real to, to me. It is so like yeah. this could happen. Um, you know, oh, well, actually, yeah. I wanted Ooh. to be an infertility doctor. That was my original dream, oh, and so right. I have worked in infertility clinics. Is that since more I was endocrinology undergrad. or more gynecological? So you Infer- to do um, infertility, you do a four-year residency in OBGYN. You get boarded in that, and then you do a three-year fellowship in reproductive endocrinology. Okay, okay. And again, had a lot of kids. Kind of was tied to Little Rock. Didn't want to move sure. away for fellowship, so I didn't sure. go down that route. But it's always been a huge interest of mine. I love the endocrine system. I love that. Oh, good. And. I was just always challenged by that population of people that want something so badly. And I always say that you can't achieve your way into fertility. And so, you know, big numbers here. If you take a hundred young, healthy couples and fecundity or the percentage of people that get pregnant every month, that changes around 32. So let's just say less than age 32 for these numbers. Okay. Take a young, hundred young, healthy couples, have unprotected relations for a year. About mm-hmm. 85 out of hundred are going to get pregnant. Fecundity is about 23 to 24% every month. And so quick to tell people, you may be a month 11 girl, and it may take you that long and you're still perfectly normal. And I was a month 11 girl. Wow, really? Yeah, so I think the first thing is defining what actually is infertility and subfertility. If you take those 15 super anxious people who haven't gotten pregnant the first year and you give them a second year, about 10 of the 15 will get pregnant. And so there's probably only probably between five and 10% of the population in that age range that's truly infertile or subfertile. And remember that up to 50% of infertility can be male factor, and that's like not my thing. So that's important. Do I think fertility and nutrition make a difference for men? 
absolutely. But, you know, that's beyond the scope of what I do. So when you have people that are in that range that don't have an easy to find diagnosis, like endometriosis, a history of pelvic inflammatory disease, uterine anomalies, chromosomal abnormalities, you know, there's things where we can figure it out pretty quick. When you fall in that range of either PCOS or especially atypical PCOS, where you don't have a lot of the normal things we expect, you're at your ideal body weight, you actually have regular periods, but yet there's some insulin resistance going Wait, on. Wait, you can have PCOS with regular periods? Well, regular-ish. You know, a period can range between 21 and 42 days. And so they can oh, okay. feel regular and they may not always okay. be ovulatory. But and aren't so, they with the facial hair and the acne and all not that? Not necessarily. So really? some people can, or it can be, you know, I'm ethnic or I'm Italian. I never thought twice about uh, that I have more facial right, hair. So sure. I'll say the sure. stealthier PCOS cases. And I've seen plenty of them, you know, where they meet criteria, but that's not the first thing you thought. You think, oh, this is going to be endometriosis or this is going to be male mm -hmm. factor. Um, I think that's the population where diet and lifestyle makes a huge oh, difference. absolutely. And then, of course, the unexplained infertility, because, you know, if there's something where you're going to go through IVF or you're going to decide that you're not going to be, you know, either the maternal egg or, you know, let's say if you're going to go through an alternative route, I think a healthy diet is going to put you in the right mental and physical state to deal with reality as it is. You yeah. know, like I say for cancer, you know, people that eat a plant-based diet are still going to get cancer, but hopefully right. they can fight it and they can have a better experience with the whole thing than if they were unhealthy to start with. Well, one of the benefits we say of intermittent fasting is treating hyperinsulinemia, which is obviously one of the hallmarks of PCOS. And Dr. Fung, who's the father of intermittent fasting, says you know, it's the cure for type two diabetes, which falls under that, PCOS falls under that sometimes because of the high blood glucose for them. So I, I have a few tricks in my oh, bag. But can we, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I think people have a big misunderstanding about high blood sugar and type two diabetes, and this does translate to PCOS. And so you understand that type one diabetes is that your pancreas isn't making the insulin, totally different subject. Type two is insulin resistance. Well, what does that mean? That means that the insulin receptor on the cell, when the insulin tries to bind to it, it doesn't work so well. That's right. Do you know why it doesn't work so well? Well, I heard one person say, it's like putting a key in the lock and the lock is gummy and they're fatty. Yeah, so where does the, where does the gum come from that's in the lock? Is that blood glucose? No. Is it? Okay, oh, I'm so glad you don't know this. Okay, this oh, is okay. one of my favorite things to tell people. Okay, then what's in the lock? If I'm putting my key in and I'm trying to unlock the cell to usher glucose to the cells, what's gumming it up? Oh, that's a great question. Okay, so let's pretend that I am a muscle cell and you know, cells run on glucose, they run on sugar. And let's pretend like we have, I have too much fat inside my cell. So I'm not talking about the fat you could pinch on your body, but actually the fat within the cell. It's that intramyocellular lipid that blocks that insulin receptor from the inside, almost as if I put gum in your lock, but from the inside of your house. So oh, okay. at the end of the day, if the glucose can't be ushered into the cell by the insulin receptor, what do we end up with? Too much blood sugar. Okay, so let's take it back to a real metaphor. If I come to your house and I'm inside your house and I block up your lock with gum and you come home and you can't get in, are you gonna sleep in your yard? With a solution B, well, just <laughs> right. don't sleep in your yard. Right. That's about as logical as telling people don't eat sugar. 
So the sugar is the end product of a process of, that isn't working. That's why when people say, well, I was borderline type two diabetic, but then I lost a bunch of weight and now I'm not diabetic anymore. Boom, it's because they got the gum out of the lock. And so that's why I advocate for a low fat, high fiber diet for insulin resistance, oh. not a low carb, low sugar diet, because we go back to fixing the problem, not just making your numbers look pretty. Yes, eating low sugar will cause your blood sugar to look less, but that's probably not a sustainable option for most people. And also you're gonna miss out on so many great fruits and vegetables and things like that. So it's such a, it was not explained to me that eloquently in med school. And yet every patient I've ever drawn it out for is like, I get it. And I said, well, would you just want to take a drug that's like saying crawl in through the window, like an insulin sensitizer? If I said, you know, Lisa, just crawl in through your window, it'll be fine. That would not be a sustainable option. And so I think we have to do a better job explaining to people what the process is. Back to your allopathic training, then yeah. you, you, your four hours of nutritional got you to the point where someone came in and she's running a blood sugar, fasting blood glucose 120. You were told in the beginning to give her metformin, right? Right. But yet in the state of California and the Kaiser Permanente system, which like it or not, is one of the largest, you know, healthcare organizations, their first line of therapy for a new onset of type two diabetes is six months of a low fat, high fiber plant-based diet because it works better than metformin. But then I heard uh, Dave Asprey the other day just talking about the whole low fat thing and it's all part of the Neil Barnard and all that philosophy that there were high um, the diagnosing of cancers because the low fat people then were running to low fat like they run to gluten free and they mm -hmm. were eating probably processed foods that had more sugar. Well, that's not the low fats problem. That's the I made bad choices problem. So I have not seen that study and that would be interesting to me, but I would vote that probably anyone that eats a bunch of processed food, high fat or low fats more likely to, you know, and when you look at low fat diets for especially colon cancer, the results are there. You know, if we tie it to the end point, which is obesity, the real risk factor is where does the high fat diet get us, you know, so I would be interested in looking at that and I would be very, very hesitant to change any of my recommendations based on that, especially not knowing the quality of the study or who funded it. Right. But that's interesting. That's, that's right. news to me. You do have to look, see who's lenses. Yeah, look at the whole picture. That's right. and, and yeah, when things don't make sense, I find sometimes when you start tracing the dollars, things make a lot more sense. Well, we intermittent fasters often don't eat breakfast. So when we fight the idiom of breakfast is the most important meal of the day, it was in the study, we go, who funded the study? Uh, Dr. Right. Kellogg was the first person who even thought of that phrase. Well, what did he have? He had a little cereal company. And then the sugar so-and-so in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. So you do, you have to look and see what lenses they're looking right. at. And, and that's why it's so overwhelming. And I think that's why people, it's like what happened with, with tobacco. When there started to be an inkling that tobacco was maybe not good for us, the industry thought, well, we'll just confuse them and we'll just flood them with so much information that people will go, I don't even know what the right answer is. I'm just gonna do what I wanna do. And I think that's kind of where we're at with nutrition is that if you even try to be a good advocate for yourself and you try to do your homework and follow people on Instagram, there's so many conflicting 
stories out there that it's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to make for dinner for my kids? I'm just tired. And you make what you want to make. And so I think that decision fatigue is very, very real. And I think that's the next thing we're going to be battling for the, the group of people that are already kind of awakening to their health, but are just getting exhausted with like, how do I know if what I'm doing is the right thing? My answer to that is if it's working for you and you're meeting your goals and you're able to get through your day and you know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't mean that there's one right answer. It just means what's working for you. Well, Dr. Fung, who I call the father of intermittent fasting, you know, that papa there, um, he loves the high fat, low carb approach because he's dealing with morbidly obese patients. He's a nephrologist in Toronto. So dealing a lot of dialysis, kidney failure and stuff like that. Do you ever then look toward that for something in helping? Because high fat, low carb would reduce the sugar or you think that's just a band-aid then and it's really the other approach. Well, I mean I think when you're talking about like an end-stage renal disease or a renal diet, that is such a specific thing and yeah, yeah, there there are some very special exceptions there. So I would never attempt to translate that to the general population. Um, but I think extreme measures sometimes make sense. Like for example, um, well-monitored water-only fasting can be a godsend for some people when it's done in a good controlled, you know, monitored environment. So, you know, most people don't have the luxury or the resources to be able to do these extreme things in a in a supervised fashion. And so that's yeah. why I'm quick to tell people, be careful before you do anything that is, if it's a quick fix, make sure it's transitioned. Like people that want to go keto are like, cause you can be a keto paleo vegan. Well, it's probably not going to be a long-term sustainable thing. And if you're not going to do it forever, how do you plan to transition back to lifestyle choices that will actually be sustainable for you? So I'm not anti, I mean, I've water fasted, I've raw fasted. I mean, I've, I've dabbled in all that and I know what resonates for me, but I also know there's a lot of people where that wouldn't be safe for them because it would change their metabolism so quickly that the medicines they're on wouldn't be safe. Now the whole keto thing, I just see a lot of women in their forties and fifties, it's difficult for them. Is it a hormonal battle at that point? Is it something you can do younger and it's easier? Well, the most important time to eat healthy is probably actually in your teenage years. It's what you do as an <gasps> adolescent. I that... had Pop-Tarts and tabs. I know, I drank we're tabs. all living on borrowed time, right? Because oh, it was the 80s gosh. and everything was still healthy. I mean, like if I think about the Happy Meal load I had as a child, right. you know, oh. it's, it's actually amazing. Um, <laughs> it's mm. amazing we're all still sitting here. Right. But I would even argue that Happy Meals were probably healthier back then. But anyway. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think it, Hindsight's twenty twenty, and I hate that COVID kind of hacked that that you know idiom. But since most of us didn't necessarily grow up with a perfect diet, or most of us didn't know what our health risk factors were going to be, you know, I think you just have to start where you're at, and you have to check guilt at the door because guilt does not serve you. Oh. So I don't think you know. There's the ideal and the best way to do everything. Well, I don't do anything ideal or best all day, every day. If I do like one percent of my day where I truly nail it, I feel like I've had a good day. And I just think, well, you know, what do I need to do tomorrow? And so it's just that tiny, small steps that lead to bigger change. So I think starting simple, starting small, and then really not feeling bad that for what you didn't know yesterday. Right. Um, one thing we also say as intermittent fasting health coaches is don't look at anyone else's plate because Thank it's you. that bioindividuality. What works for you? I can't be judgy that you're eating all the beans and rice if that were a thing. But you know what I mean? It, it's it, That's what social media has done. You know, Pinterest notwithstanding, there are a lot of there are a lot of great things about social media. Uh, Pinterest, I you know, I have such envy because I'm not 
a decorator. Oh, I'm not crafty. I right. was born not, a Pinterest fail. Right. Mm-hmm. Me too. So <laughs> all that to say, there are so many good things we know about social media. But the one thing we know that we fall into is comparison. Comparison is the thief of joy. We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's comparison and then being judgy about somebody else. I know I've done it, that I have to get off because I think, why do I even care what she's eating or wearing or doing or smoking? It's her business. I mean, I don't care. Right. I really don't care what anyone else does until I'm on social media and I'm like, well, you can't be doing that because you're on my yeah. social well, media One is the physician when people come to me for help and they say, well, I'm not willing to do that. Like, I'm not willing to log my calories or whatever. I'll say, well, you know, it's a free country. You are free to suffer as much as you want to. But I think that having the option of knowing that you can be empowered to make change is really important, but without the need to be defensive. And I find that when nutrition comes up, it is actually worse than talking about religion, politics, or money, because people are like, well, you know, I would do that, or I did that once. And I'm like, I actually didn't ask your experience. (laughs) You know, you asked me a question and I answered it. (gasps) And then we get on this like really long guilt train of why you're not like me when I never actually invited you to be like me. So I think boundaries are really important. And I think that's one thing that social media is good at, or maybe I'm just on the boundary side of Instagram, but I think people are learning that that it's okay to have boundaries. Boundaries are like a fence around our house. They're not just there to keep out the bad people, but they're to protect what's important to us. Let's talk about some diagnostic tools that have been under criticism uh, for overuse or underuse the last 10, 15 years. That was mammograms. What's your opinion on mammograms? And have you considered thermography? Um, I have some patients who choose thermography. I think thermography, I think any sort of surveillance is better than no surveillance. And okay. I will say what the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says, and this is a paraphrase, but basically you need to have a discussion with each individual patient about her risk factors. Um, and then decide it based on that. And so if you look at the national guidelines, um, you should get a mammogram every year after age 50. It's between 40 and 50 where it's super dicey. And so I think that discussion is the most important thing because it's not just about your personal history, your family history, but also your risk tolerance for a false positive. And I'm really big into not just informed consent, but enthusiastic consent, not just about sex and intimacy, but about healthcare procedures. I wanna say, yes, I wanna do this. Not like, oh, I guess I'll get it done. You know, it's like you've got to be enthusiastic about your consent. And so I think people don't necessarily have really good transparency on the psychological ramifications that come with a false positive. And if you look at, and it's getting old, so I'm almost hesitant to quote it, but the Cochrane Group, which does meta-analysis, they did a study, and it's been probably more than a decade now, that talked about the number needed to treat to actually save lives on mammograms between your 40s and 50s. And the numbers were pretty abysmal to where if you translated those numbers to a test for a child, nobody would put up with it. But yet women in their 40s, I mean, we're mothers, we're at the peak of our careers, we'll do anything not to die. And I think that gets preyed upon. So my hope is not that mammograms are good or bad. My hope is that we get better at surveillance and that the technology increases the, you know, the sensitivity and specificity of the test, but more importantly, that we work on prevention. You know, if you choose to get a mammogram or you don't choose to get a mammogram, I'm still going to talk to you about, you need to be at your ideal body weight. You need to exercise. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's part of the story is the same. And so I think mammograms are a super duper individualized decision. And I really respect people's autonomy as long as I feel like they're in a state of informed consent. If it's a fear-based decision, whether it's fear of finding cancer or fear of a false positive, 
I don't like fear-based medicine. And so that's when I go, okay, if you're still afraid of something, that, that means I haven't explained this to you well enough yet because I want you to make a fearless decision no matter what that decision is. And what about pap smear? Is that something we still continue to have those despite monogamous relationships? After 34 years, okay, I'm talking about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that's great. And I think pap smears are almost like the opposite of mammograms. I think they have come like leaps and bounds. Um, the guidelines changed in 2006. I know this because that's the year I was an intern and it was really hard to be a brand new baby doctor telling people, you know, you don't need a pap every year. And they're like, girl, you've been a doctor for five minutes. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. So it was, a, it was a tough crowd that year. But no, that's based on a huge amount of data. And now that we know that most cervical cancer is based on a sexually transmitted virus, that's why we can space things out. It's just like how when you go to the dentist, sometimes you get x-rays, sometimes you don't. Nobody questions that, but someone somewhere decided it. The caveat is that we still find endometrial cancer on pap smears, and there's one weird version of cervical cancer that's not a squamous cell. It's actually like an adenocarcinoma or more of a glandular carcinoma of the cervix, more likely to happen to girls in their late 20s, early 30s. Birth control is a risk factor. Oh. That's why even nuns get pap smears. You can be chilling in celibacy club and you still need a pap smear. But so, not yearly at that point. No, not nine. yearly. I think that the I mean, they don't come three... to town too often. So right. when they load up and come to town, you probably get the nun wagon. They come in and what, every, do yeah, you I don't three know. to five I, years I can't speak that to that. Point? But yeah, right. so every three years between age 21 and 30, every five years, if it's co-tested, that means we look at the cells and look at the virus. That's between age four, 30 and four, 65. For the Caucasian women, there actually are some slightly different guidelines based on your heritage. But if you get to 65 and you haven't had any abnormals in the 10 years before that, then you still need a pelvic exam. You still need someone to look and you need someone to press around and feel, but you don't need anyone to scrape because okay. sadly enough, something else is going to get you. So you can probably cross cervical cancer off your list of things to worry about by the but that's just because the science has gotten better and it's not in a pap smear is kind of like saying a xerox copy it's kind of it's a different test and it's a lot more complicated than it used to be it's remember when we were young it was a thing we feared and then you start birthing babies and everybody sees all your parts and you're like i don't care i i'm just i i feel like i'm past that in my mind but i shouldn't be so trivial in my thinking that and I yeah, do. and it's I, only I, one part one. of the pelvic exam, you know, just like you still go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned, yeah. even if it's not time to get the x-rays, because there's a bunch of other stuff they're checking on. Now they're even checking for oral cancer. And that's interesting right now that I've read that um, statistically, they're actually diagnosing head and neck cancer more frequently in America than cervical cancer. I would like to credit that to our better surveillance and also the Gardasil vaccine. But hopefully when you're going to your dentist, they're doing a head and neck cancer screening exam because at the end of the day, it's still HPV. Okay, there you go. Okay, yeah, so if you're note, gonna worry about something, worry about head and neck cancer. Just keep your gynecology visits. And you okay. still need to come every year, whether you have a pelvic exam or not, whether you have a pap smear or not, but that's part of your wellness. And so you've prepaid it into your insurance in most situations. So I encourage women to come. You've already paid for it. Plus, you know, we have fun talking. I think it's important to have someone that connects and checks in with you, whether it's your primary doctor, your gynecologist. I think that's a part of maintenance. Even if it's just for me to say, you get a gold star, you get a pat on the back, you're doing everything right. You deserve to have someone to give you that positive reinforcement. Okay, dropping the mic there. You're good. This was great. Thank you so much. I've got uh, your information, your website, and our show notes. Everybody, get your, your lady parts checked. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.